talk about us working this out. I didn't come here to buy you another drink or go another round. You're a day too late. I'm on my way from getting over you. Should have seen me yesterday. As a full blown case of missing you and pouring drinks, doing anything to ease the pain of you leaving. If you're thinking I'm down and out. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Shoulda Seen Me Yesterday by Brown County's Noah Smith. Noah is our feature Ohio musical artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akerbeeka Journal. Hi, everybody. When we had a couple of listeners suggest tonight's case, I had to do a little research. I have been to a lot of funerals, and I think we really take for granted the comfort that comes from seeing a body or a closed casket or even an urn of ashes and knowing that's the deceased, they are here while we celebrate them, and we know where they are going when it's over. Now, I've heard more than one family of a missing person who is presumed to be dead talk about the need to bring their loved one home. Even when they feel like a killer has been caught and the motive or facts of the case are largely known, missing remains can be a wound that never heals. Well, tonight's story is on this topic, a Tuscaroras County case that is closed, though no body was ever found nor any suspect charged. I mean, can that happen? Close a case even though no suspect was ever charged? Yes, and you'll see why. Because... While the mystery of where the body of Ruth Lucille Loader is, we do know she was the first victim of two Ohio men who launched a brief but violent cross-country killing spree in 1994. Ruth Loader went by her middle name. Most folks called her Miss Lucy. And she lived in an old 12-room farmhouse on the outskirts of Port Washington, a tiny Tuscaroras County village of fewer than 400 souls. In that peaceful, rural setting, she and her husband Fred raised four children, daughters Bonnie, Catherine, and Ellen, and their son Tom. Fred died in 1982, and Miss Lucy had been a widow for more than a decade, but that farmhouse had been her home for more than 50 years. Lucy was full of compassion, a woman who answered every call from family and friends in need of help, a woman who handed out food to people riding the rails near her home. But her kids also fondly thought of her as the western sharpshooter Annie Oakley, recalling how she would stand in the kitchen doorway with a twenty-two rifle and pick off groundhogs in the yard. 
She was a smart woman, had graduated at the top of her class, and helped keep food on the table through jobs with General Electric and Timken. At the age of 79, Lucy knew her days at the farmhouse were numbered. She was fighting cancer, and it remained to be seen how long she could live alone. The illness had taken its toll, at one point dropping her weight below 70 pounds. But she had surgery and treatments and had rebounded up to 82 pounds while in the care of daughter Bonnie and her husband, Tom Gardner, who lived just a couple miles away. But Miss Lucy was feeling well enough that she wanted to sleep in her own bed again. And so on August 29th, Bonnie and Tom took her home. Lucy told them of her plans to have breakfast the next morning with her sister, Pearl. As Bonnie and Tom departed the house, Lucy stood in the doorway, waving to them. We'll see you tomorrow, Mom, Bonnie said. Have a good time with Aunt Pearl. The next morning, Pearl arrived at the farmhouse, ready for breakfast at 8 a.m. She knocked on the door. Lucy didn't answer. Pearl called Bonnie and Tom. Was Lucy there? Tom hurried to the farmhouse. Tom Gardner was a former police officer, but he didn't need that training to see what had happened. The frame to the back door was broken. A red phone cord was missing. Lucy's glasses lay on her pillow. Her 1989 Buick Skylark was gone. Lucy had been kidnapped. The search began immediately. Word of Lucy's disappearance traveled through the community and seven miles away to Newcomerstown, where Lucy had entered the world as Ruth Lucille Reidenbach back in 1915. And there, someone had seen Lucy's Buick being driven around town about 9 p.m. the night before. Only Lucy wasn't in the car. The driver was a white man with long, dark hair. Newcomer's Town was big compared to Port Washington, but still fewer than 4,000 people. The police knew its citizenry, especially the troublemakers, and they thought the description of the driver sounded like Louis Eugene Gilbert. He was a local man, 22 years old and hard to miss at 6 foot 4 inches. Just two weeks earlier, he had been released from prison after serving 11 months of an 18-month sentence for breaking and entering and stealing a boat. He'd also been convicted of child endangering for shaking and biting his three-month-old son to the point of breaking the baby's skin. But he wasn't given additional time for that and actually earned early release through good behavior. After getting out of jail, Gilbert returned to Newcomerstown to pay a visit to his estranged wife, but she shut the door in his face and filed for divorce. Within hours of Lucy's disappearance, the Tuscarawas County Sheriff's Department received a missing persons report on another resident, 16-year-old Eric Alvin Elliott, also from Newcomerstown. Newcomerstown Police Chief James Friel thought of Eric as a clean-cut kid who worked as a clerk at a local grocery store. There had been just that one incident a month earlier. Elliot had been charged with breaking into the local Cy Young Lane's bowling alley, where he took $30 in vending money and some liquor. But after seeing how Elliot had been frightened to near tears upon his arrest, 
Frail hoped that that would be the end of Elliot's petty crimes career. But authorities soon learned their two missing persons cases were connected. And while Lucy most assuredly had been a victim, it appeared Elliot was an accomplice. This became clear two days after Lucy vanished when her Buick was found in a place no one was expecting. It was stuck in the mud in a field in Callaway County, Missouri, 600 miles from Newcomerstown and 150 yards from a tragic and bloody crime scene. When Gilbert and Elliot left town, they jumped on I-70 and headed west, and when they became mired in the mud, they abandoned the car and began walking until they came to the home of 86-year-old William Brewer and his wife, Flossie May, near Kingdom City. They asked to use the phone, saying they needed to call a wrecker. The Brewers invited them in, but they couldn't find a phone book. And it was about then that Gilbert decided the Brewers were going to die. After chatting with the couple for half an hour, they forced them into the basement of their farmhouse and shot them both in the head three times each. Then Gilbert and Elliot stole their cash, rifles, and a green 1981 Oldsmobile Cutlass and got back on the road. The Brewers were found by a son who went to their house when he couldn't rouse them on the phone. Law enforcement quickly tied their murders to the disappearance of Ruth Lucille Loder back in Ohio, since her stolen car was there. Now that it was obvious the two men were on a cross-country killing spree, the FBI joined the hunt. But profilers couldn't understand the cruel motive of these killers. It was so cold-blooded. If they wanted a car, they just needed to take it. None of their victims could have put up a fight. Back home in Newcomerstown, Eric Elliott's parents, Robert and stepmom Julie, issued a public plea for their son to turn himself in. But they told reporters they were convinced their son was likely a hostage, bullied into going with Gilbert, and too threatened to oppose him. Authorities believed Elliot had only met Gilbert after he was released from prison. And Elliot's parents said the encounter frightened him. They told reporters that during a recent family dinner, Elliot had mentioned this Louie and how he was afraid of him. Eric's a very friendly, quiet kid, Robert Elliot said of his son. He's never been violent. And yet, the killers were already on their way to a fourth victim. After leaving the Brewers, the pair turned south and entered Oklahoma, where they paid a quick visit to Gilbert's mother, Yvonne Rowan, in the city of Tahlequah. They told her the car they were driving belonged to a friend and left the next day. And that's when they came across 37-year-old Roxanne Rudell. Roxy was an unarmed security guard for a marina at Lake Stanley Draper, near Norman, not far from Oklahoma City. One of the perks of her job was access to some prime fishing holes. And on this day, after her shift ended, she lingered to do some fishing. Roxy had married just two years earlier, and she was working the night job to save money for her dream of owning a horse ranch. 
On September 4, she had the unfortunate distinction of having something the killers wanted, a 1991 Dodge pickup truck. Gilbert ordered Roxy in the trunk of the brewer's car, and Elliot followed behind driving Roxy's truck as they maneuvered to a more secluded wooded area of the lake. Then they got out. Elliot tied Roxy's hands and sat her beneath a tree while they rummaged through her belongings and found a couple of dollars. She begged for her life and promised not to call police if they would just take the truck and let her go. Gilbert didn't believe her. He shot her three times in the head. It didn't take long for Roxy's body to be discovered. It was next to a trail and a motocross rider who pulled over to wait for his friends to catch up spotted her. The park rangers found the brewer's abandoned car nearby and authorities quickly connected Roxy's murder to Gilbert and Elliot. On September 6, about a week after the killing spree began, it was all over. With police from three states on their trail, they received a couple of tips near Santa Fe, New Mexico. One reported two men had driven up to his house asking for gasoline. He gave it to them, but thought they were acting suspiciously. The other tipster said he had given the pair a lift into town that evening, then returned them to where their pickup truck was stuck in a gully near the Santa Fe Downs racetrack. That night, a dozen armed officers followed the leads and took Gilbert and Elliot by surprise as they slept in a concrete culvert. They collected their weapons, two rifles, a shotgun, and a pistol. There was still no sign of Ruth, but back home, her family had accepted she was dead. For one thing, she couldn't live long without the heart medicine that was still in her house. And now that they knew about the other victims, the outcome seemed obvious. But people kept looking for her, The FBI sent a plane. Police brought their hound dogs. Nearly 200 people volunteered a foot search. The Port Washington Fire Department's auxiliary made food to feed them all as the search for Ruth's remains continued for weeks. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Ruth's daughter, Bonnie, once explained to a reporter how her missing mother would haunt her for years to come, like the way she would travel to an ice cream store near her mother's home, pass a field, and look across the wide expanse, wondering, is she there? Now, while Gilbert and Elliot were wanted in three states, Oklahoma got the first crack. They were both charged with Roxy Rudell's murder. Gilbert's defense argued he had an IQ of 75 and had been abused as a child, suffering beatings with a 4 by 4 But the jury found him guilty and sentenced him to death. 
Elliot's case went differently. Elliot took the stand in his own defense and claimed he was oblivious to the first three murders. He said he only wanted to go to California, where his mother lived, and Gilbert agreed to take him if he would either steal a car or a gun. So Elliot took his father's twenty-two caliber handgun and gave it to Gilbert. Elliot said he wasn't at Lucy's house, that he didn't know she had been killed when Gilbert picked him up in her Skylark. He also said he didn't know Gilbert had killed the Brewers and only suspected it after they were visiting Gilbert's mom in Oklahoma. He admitted to playing a role on Roxy Rudell's death. He said Gilbert demanded he tie her hands so that he had a role in this cross-country rampage, and he did so, but that afterward he went to the truck and waited as he heard Roxy plea for her life and Gilbert shoot her. He talked about how, a day later, he felt sick at the sight of Gilbert fishing with Roxy's fishing pole and tackle box at a lake in the Texas panhandle. Elliot's defense argued that Fendant was lower than average intelligence and talked about how he had dropped out of high school after grieving hard over a car crash that had taken the lives of his two best friends a year earlier. It was enough to sway one juror. And after a 15-hour deliberation, the jury was hopelessly hung by an 11-to-1 vote. The prosecutor said he'd try again. After all, Gilbert had testified Elliot was with him for all the murders and had even pulled the trigger on the brewers. Authorities believed him. But the second trial never happened. The day jury selection was to begin, Elliot pleaded guilty to Rudell's murder and received life in prison without parole. Missouri got their day in court with Gilbert and gave him a second death sentence for the murders of the Brewers. Elliot did not stand trial there, and no charges have ever been filed in Lucy's disappearance or presumed murder. But Lucy's family did get answers about that night. Seven years after she disappeared, her son-in-law, Tom Gardner, met with Lewis Gilbert across a long, narrow table in a room at the Fulton County Courthouse in Missouri right after his second conviction for killing the Brewers. Gardner shared what happened in that meeting in an interview with a local Times reporter in 2014. Gilbert was very forthcoming. I could feel he was relieving himself, getting it off his chest, Gardner said. Gilbert said the plan had been for he and Elliot to run away to California, where they planned to start killing homosexuals. But they needed a car. They followed railroad tracks through Newcomerstown, the ones that led to the old farmhouse just outside Port Washington. And there they spotted the Buick parked outside of the garage. They went to the car and rooted around for keys, but Lucy must have heard the noise. She came outside and found them. Gilbert said he and Elliot fought her, tied her up with the red phone cord from her house, and put her in the trunk of her own car. They traveled a zigzag route through country roads until they stopped near a guardrail, got out, and removed Lucy. Lucy told them, 
you might as well kill me because I have cancer. And so they did. But where? After Gilbert and Elliot had been captured, Gilbert gave detectives some vague directions that turned up nothing. And after he was appointed an attorney, he clammed up completely. Now, seven years later, he tried again to retrace his movements on a map for Gardner. But he said he was legally blind. It was dark, and he just couldn't remember it well. Detectives followed his sketchy directions and searched the route, but couldn't find Lucy's remains. Elliot said he couldn't help and continued to maintain he hadn't been there when Lucy was killed or dumped. Lucy's son, Tom Loder, told reporters how important it was for him to find her body. He had searched the woods and hollows of Tuscarawas County throughout the winter when field and forest was bare. He had to stop when spring returned its thick cover of foliage and tall grass, but was determined to get back to it the following fall. When the family held a memorial service for Lucy a year after her disappearance, hundreds attended. Her husband's tombstone at West Lawn Cemetery in Coshocton County's Shady Bend was finished with Lucy's birth and death date, but she wasn't in the grave. Tom Loder didn't see the point. You can't have a funeral or a memorial service without a body, he said. I'm sorry. My sisters know how I feel. I lay down to sleep and I see Mom standing there by the hearth, dressed in that skimpy nightgown and no shoes, hands tied with a phone cord and a gun to her head. Tom Loder was also angry because since the killers couldn't or wouldn't lead them to her body, they had to legally sue their missing mother in order to get legal control of her estate so they could sell the farmhouse. Otherwise, they would have to wait seven years for the law to allow them to declare her dead. It was paperwork, but still salt in a painful wound. Tom Loder died in 2004. Lucy's daughter, Ellen Henderson, had also once desperately wanted to recover her mother's remains. She's the baby of the family, 19 years younger than her eldest sibling. Back in 1994, she told reporters, now that they've been caught, maybe they'll tell us where mom is so we can bury her and heal. A few years later, when that clearly wasn't going to happen, Ellen said she'd learned to let go of the need to know her mother's bones were resting next to her father's. She'd even learned to forgive. I've come to realize it's not her anymore. She's in heaven with my dad and my brother sitting next to Gilbert, forgiving him. One reason some of Lucy's children were able to envision that was because Gilbert had asked for their forgiveness. It wasn't easy, and it took a while, but some of them did even exchanging letters in which Gilbert expressed his regret and said he had found God. Elliot is serving a life sentence in an Oklahoma prison. Gilbert was put to death in July of 2003 at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. In his last letter to the Gardeners, he included a photo of himself 
that was signed God's Child. Tom Gardner did not object to the death sentence and said Gilbert needed to die for his crimes. But he added, I carry his picture with me to remind myself that the man who was executed was not the same man who killed her. Oh, I think you've got to be a pretty special person to be able to forgive in a case like this. Yeah, for sure. It's just so frustrating that the guy who killed and dumped her could not lead them to her. Well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Noah Smith was born and raised in Mount Oreb, where he loved to explore the endless trails of woods and waters throughout Brown County. And while he travels a lot for his music and spends a lot of time in Nashville, he always comes back home. He loves to mingle his native roots with road-worthy storytelling and considers his music style a cross between country and rock and roll. Now, Noah is a graduate of the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music with a degree in electronic media, music production, and audio and video design. Musically, he's been influenced by Paul Simon, Johnny Cash, Alan Jackson, and bands like Brand New, Taking Back Sunday, and Death Cab for Cutie. Maybe you'll hear some of those influences in the song we're featuring on this episode, which he released last year. Oh, big Death Cab for Cutie fan here. At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of Shoulda Seen Me Yesterday by Noah Smith. Here is the rest of that song. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. I didn't pop my first top today until 2 p.m. I didn't sit there and swear that you're the reason for the shape I'm in. I didn't switch to the hard stuff like I usually do when your name comes up. I didn't tell that cam to double back and drive me by your house. I went straight home, didn't call your phone to see if you were out. If you think I'm doing okay Should've seen me yesterday I was a full-blown case of missing you And pouring drinks, doing anything To ease the pain of you leaving If you're thinking I'm down and out And broken in a bad way Should've seen me yesterday Come here to talk about us working this out. I didn't come here to buy you another drink or go another round. You're a day too late. I'm on my way from getting over you. Should have seen me yesterday. I was a full blown case of missing you and pouring drinks, doing anything.
should have seen me yesterday. I was a full blown case of missing you and pouring drinks, doing anything to ease the pain of you leaving. If you're thinking, A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.